Hi, I'm Brooke Andrews. And I'm Sammy Blooming, and this is the Criminal Genes Podcast. Yes. We are going to be talking about a bunch of fun things, mainly DNA, DNA fingerprinting, and murder. Fun little sequence of events. Yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah, today we're going to be talking about DNA fingerprinting and how it contributes to the solving of murder. Absolutely. We'll explain the backstory, we'll get into a little bit of the science-y bit, we'll break it down so that it's nice and simple, and then, of course, we get to do the fun part, which is talking about real-world applications, some real fancy little serial killers and murderers who have been busted due to science. Thank you, science. Yeah, thanks, science. Yeah, let's get into it. Awesome. Let's get into the science stuff. Yes. A bit of the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's go into detail about what DNA fingerprinting is. So today, DNA fingerprinting is most commonly used to establish correlations between DNA left at a crime scene and the DNA of the given suspects. DNA fingerprinting is essentially the process in which DNA is cut, copied, and separated. First, the DNA is taken from the crime scene, and then it is sampled and prepared for the DNA fingerprinting process. Now, in order to do this, scientists need a PCR machine, which is the product that copies the tiny DNA, and a gel, okay, ready? Electrophoresis machine. Yes, Yes, thank you. Good pronunciation. I'm proud. (laughs) The product that separates the DNA by size. Now, once this process is all completed, all DNA can be accurately compared to that of the original sample, which will ultimately lead to the discovery of who is responsible for the crime. Yeah, absolutely. If there is any form of DNA left at any crime scene, once we can take that sample and take a nice look at it, you can compare that to that of any suspect, which we can take in the form, it's usually in the form of blood, but you can probably take it from other things like saliva, some grosser things we'll talk about (laughs) later in the podcast. Yeah, we'll get into that. Other things like that. So DNA fingerprinting was first invented in 1984, a while back. Uh, by Professor Sir Alec Jeffries. Go Alec Jeffries. He's the real hero of today's yes. podcast. Oh my gosh. Love him. Love him. After he realized you could detect variations in human DNA in the form of mini satellites. Now, what are mini satellites? Well, these are short sequences, 10 to 60 base pairs long, of repetitive DNA that show variation from one person to the next, which you can see through the number of repeated units, which are often known as stutters, in a mini satellite sequence. It's a technique that detects lots of mini satellites in the genome to produce a pattern that's completely unique to an individual, just like your fingerprint, hence the name fingerprinting. Very, very straightforward over there. Yes, he was unique. Didn't hesitate to get creative there. Oh, for sure. The only reason this might, like, two people would have the same fingerprint might be if they're identical twins. But again, even then, this is a pretty accurate process. Yeah. All right. I think it's time to get into some real life, you know, crimes. Not yet. No. Yeah. We got to talk about DNA profiling, Brooke. Oh, my bad. Later. (laughs) uh, Just a quick foreshadowing there. Quick foreshadowing because DNA fingerprinting actually is a little bit outdated in some ways. Modern day DNA profiling, which is often called SDR analysis relies on microsatellites rather than mini satellites, which are used in DNA fingerprinting. So, see, it's pretty similar, but it's like the updated version. Microsatellites, which are often known as STRs, short tandem repeats, are their shorter relatives of mini satellites, which are usually two to five base pairs long as opposed to the 10 to 60. So, it's on a mini scale, and they're repeated many times through the human genome. Um, and so today you would extract DNA from a biological sample, just a tiny bit. You can use blood, saliva, hair, as we talked about. And then instead of using restriction enzymes to cut DNA like you would in DNA fingerprinting, you're going to use a polymer, or polymerase. There you go. There, there you go. There it is. Polymerase chain reaction, which is a PCR to produce many copies. Um, and then from there, you get to separate the fragments according to size using electrophoresis. Each fragment passes by a laser, which causes them to glow with a specific color so that you can see all of this. And then the more STR sequences that are tested, the more accurate the test is at identifying someone. So they're both pretty similar processes. It's just that now instead of these 
much bigger um <laughs> the much bigger mini satellites we're using micro satellites yes super effective really good thumbs up okay now i think it's time to get into some crazy murders maybe i would love to do that bro let's get yes into it. okay i was just getting ahead of myself earlier too excited too excited <laughs> all right let's go all right All right, so let's get into the first ever use of DNA fingerprinting in crime scene analysis. I am so excited. I'm also so excited. So as I said before, DNA fingerprinting first developed by Sir Alec Jeffries. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I'm the technological just too popular. Too that popular. Just a text from you, Sammy, so... Oh, it's actually me. <laughs> yes. This is the podcast. That doesn't make sense. All right. Well, well, DNA fingerprinting developed 1984. Now, the first real use of it was 1986 for crime scene analysis specifically. I'll set the scene. So it's, it's over 30 years ago. It's the summer of 1986. It's July 31st. There's a lot of 80s music going on. People wear a lot of scrunchies. There's oh. a fun stuff going on it was the it, the time definitely time. and it's it's a thursday afternoon at 4 30 p.m and a 15 year old schoolgirl named dawn ashworth set off on a journey from a friend's house in the village of narborough i'm hoping i'm saying that right <laughs> um, yeah oh god all of these names are so hard to say it's very annoying anyway she began to walk home she lived in the nearby village of enderby which was just a few minutes walk away and she's decided to take a shortcut along a footpath known locally as 10 pound lane right off the bat that's doesn't really seem like a great thing to do that's definitely the intro to a criminal minds episode don't take weird shortcuts yeah lesson learned guys no weird shortcuts (laughs) got it well she took a shortcut down 10 pound lane and then poof she vanished she's entirely gone two days later her body was found Ugh. yep it was not alive, spoiler alert. It was found in the corner of a nearby field, covered in twigs, branches, torn up nettles, all that fun stuff. The pathologist mm. estimated that she had put up a really considerable struggle before being raped and strangled. Graphic content over here, you guys. Well, the hunt for her killer actually ended up being the first use of DNA fingerprinting and crime scene analysis, which we'll get to, because as soon as her body was found, the police realized that they had to be looking for a serial killer, because two and a half years earlier, another 15-year-old schoolgirl... Gosh. I know. Somebody's got a type. 15. Oh. oh. Okay. I'm 16. I'm safe. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not safe. Brooke's Brooke's safe. Yeah. It's fine. So her name was Linda Mann, and she'd been murdered just a few hundred yards from the scene of Dawn's murder. Her clothes had been removed in the exact same manner as um, Dawn's, and she had also been raped before being strangled with her own scarf. Oh my gosh. I I know, and it's like, come on, okay, so we got no footpaths and no scarves. Those are our lessons. Yeah, yeah, catch me never buying a scarf. Never. And detectives at the time had believed that the killer was probably a local man, who knew the area and who possibly knew Linda. I guess she hadn't put up as much of a struggle. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So obviously, Narborough and surrounding village, uh, <laughs> villages were totally paralyzed with fear. And, and all the newspapers were like, oh man, if we don't catch this guy, it could be your daughter next. And all of these people were like, give yourself up. Come on. It was clearly someone local. You should totally just... <laughs> Tell us that you murdered a girl. We'll be we'll be cool about it. We promise. Yeah, come on, just like come forward, dude. Easy. Yeah, but they didn't. Ugh, and lame. They quickly made an arrest after the discovery of Don's body. They hadn't been able to do anything after Linda's body was found, but after Don's body was found, they arrested a suspect. Ooh, very dramatic. Oof. And this suspect was a kid named Richard Buckland, who was a 17-year-old Marlborough boy with learning difficulties, which is kind of the way in 1986, I'm assuming 
autism spectrum here. Mm-hmm. Probably yeah. was not dealt with properly. Had to add to some of the struggles we'll discuss soon. And this kid knew Don and appeared to have knowledge of some details of the crimes that hadn't been made public, which is always sketchy. And they, they brought him in for questioning. And under questioning, he would repeatedly admit to the crime and then withdraw the admission. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. Quick note here. Again, he was said to have learning difficulties autism spectrum and he was put in a very typical um questioning environment i'm gonna go ahead and assume that that was not super productive to getting actual calm collected answers out of this kid probably was a little bit frightened oh yeah totally and so there was some some confusion going on and on the 10th of august so like two weeks after the murder he was charged with don's murder and appeared in court the following day And in court, he refused to confess to the murder. He was adamant that he was not guilty of the crime. And the police, who were certain that both girls' lives had to be taken by the same person, which was a fair guess, you know, Mm -hmm. right next to each other, similar causes of death. Yeah. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, The police were convinced he was lying. Oh, man. Yeah. So that's a rough start. Now, five miles northwest of Narborough was... Our friend geneticist Alec Jeffries. Oh, come on. Yes. Oh, we love him. And he was over there doing his gene stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he, you know, published an academic paper. He'd been asked to assist with a number of cases in which children were being denied British citizenship because immigration officials were disputing that they were the offspring of British parents. So that's already a whole different thing that um, DNA fingerprinting was being used for that was not crime scene analysis. Mm -hmm. But it hadn't been used in crime scene analysis yet. And um, Jeffries was pretty sure that this could be used in crime scene analysis. Other people were not sure when he first gave this talk. Some people in the audience apparently laughed at him. Oh my gosh. I know, not Alec. We love him. Yeah, he's amazing. But after Buckland's court appearance, Buckland being the guy who they were certain committed the murders, that 17-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. Jeffries released, or received an unexpected call from police who were asking him whether his new science could actually prove that Richard Buckland had murdered Linda and Don. Ooh. I know. And they said, hey, we got all this DNA stuff going on. We want to see if this will actually work. And if you could actually prove that this poor kid that we're tormenting <laughs> definitely murdered two girls. Yeah, my gosh. <laughs> and Alec Jeffries, being a good gentleman, agreed to carry out tests on Buckland's blood and on, again, graphic content, on semen taken from the dead girls' bodies. Again, they oh, were great. So there's your DNA evidence right there at the crime scene. Oh, just gross. Yeah, gross, for sure. And when he took the film from the developing tank, he did that... DNA fingerprinting that we talked about. He ran everything through a PCR machine using gel electrophoresis. He compared the um, DNA of Richard Buckland's blood and the semen found at the crime scene, which is a cool example of how we typically use DNA fingerprinting. Mm -hmm. And when he took the film out, he could see immediately that the girls had been raped by the same man. Oh, right about that. And that that man was 100% not Richard Buckland. Ugh. See, this is just... That's so sad. I know, I know. That kid was probably very traumatized. So Alec had to go to the police and tell them that, although they were totally right, hey, one guy murdered and killed, you know, both of these people. It was not Buckland. He didn't kill either of them. Oh my gosh. The police, of course, didn't like hearing that because they really needed to get someone arrested. You know, they had all this pressure from everyone nearby. There was a whole panic going on. And they were like, all right, do the test again, Gene Boy. And he did. (laughs) And they said, we still don't believe it. Do it again. So they did the test a third time. Got the exact same results every time. And the police were just really annoyed about this. The senior investigating officer is said to have muttered, one minute we've got the guy, and the next we've got, and excuse the profanity in this quote, and the next we've got jack shit. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 
Yeah, we don't... <laughs> Maybe he wasn't the best police officer. Yeah, I'm not sure about that one. So, Buckland was set free. He was obviously innocent. He was set free after after nearly three months in custody. I think it was over three months, actually, that he was in custody. And yeah. the police were back at square one. And so the following month, all the detectives got together at their fun little detective party, and they were like, hey... <laughs> You know, the tech that exonerated Buckland has to be used to catch the real killer. Which yes. is, you know, that's fair. They were like, yeah. all right, we know this works now. We have mm-hmm. DNA from the crime scene. Let's figure it out. We know that it's a local guy. Yes. And so their plan was that they would screen the entire neighborhood. They would set up an operation to gather the DNA of every single man in the area. Holy, that, that must have taken a very long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Think about that, too, right now. If that happened today, the ethical concerns? Oh, my. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. All right. So Keep they it going. sent letters to every man born between 1953 and 1970 who worked or lived in the area in recent years, asking them to agree to give a blood sample. Blood being the most easy and obvious way to get DNA. They set up two testing centers in a local school and a council office, and there were two testing sessions, one in the morning and one in the evening, Three days a week, every man was supposed to bring proof of identity. So, you know, driver's license, birth certificate, fun things like that. Mm -hmm. It was a voluntary scheme. They couldn't be like, hey, give us your blood. (laughs) That's not something you can do. Although, you know, again, a lot of people wouldn't like that now. (laughs) A few men declined. Some of them saying that they did not like needles. (laughs) Wow. What and then excuse. one or two of them saying that they did not like police officers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Fair enough, fair enough. But most of these men changed their minds quickly because um, everyone who didn't give their blood got were put under considerable social pressure. You know, everyone around them was so paralyzed with panic that they were like, you gotta give your blood, you gotta give them your blood. And they all pretty much relented. So by the end of the month, around a thousand men had volunteered to give blood samples to do this DNA fingerprinting. The forensic science labs that were conducting the test were obviously struggling to keep up, given yeah. that they were just trying to figure out this new technology. So they got national and international attention really quickly because this had never been done before. Right. My- this was I'm- over in Europe. And I mean, mm-hmm. people were talking about this in the LA Times. They were saying it might be the most significant breakthrough in resolving serious crime since fingerprinting was invented. Like oh, actual God. fingerprinting, not DNA fingerprinting. Wow, that's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah. And there were some complaints going on, like with the National Council for Civil Liberties, <laughs> which mm-hmm. were saying there's a risk of human error and Parliament needs to consider the implications of mass screening programs. But there was such a strong sense of community outrage that people were like, yeah, whatever. So after eight months, 5,511 men had given blood samples. Only one had refused. Oh, awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was still no match. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a little suspicious. Yeah, it was. Now, p- police had to, like, keep expanding their hunt because they were like, we know it's got to be someone. And among those who were recorded as giving a sample was a guy named Colin Pitchfork. Oh, what a last name. What a name. We're going to figure out pretty quickly that this name, appropriate. (laughs) He was a 27-year-old baker. Oh, how wholesome. Yeah, and a father of two young children. Sweet. Oh. And three years earlier, he had been questioned about his movements on the evening that Linda had been murdered, and he had said that he had been looking after his young son, which was correct. He was looking after his young son. Yeah, such a sweet, like, what a good guy. A little bit of foreshadowing here, guys. (laughs) And in August of 1987, more than a year after the killing of Dawn, one of Pitchfork's workmates, a man called Kelly, I don't know his last name. I'm not bothering to look that up. They just give me Kelly in all the articles I look at. So I guess this guy was decent enough that we were like, all right, we don't need exposing his last name. Yes. So Kelly was out having a pint with a few friends in a pub, as you do, you know, out with the boys. And yeah. the conversation turned to talking about their friend Pitchfork. We love, we love this guy. Apparently. Yeah, just, just Colin Pitchfork. He's a baker, you know, he makes cupcakes. Yeah. And 
Kelly confessed that he had impersonated him in order to take the blood test on his behalf. Ayo? Um, yeah. <laughs> Kelly explained that Pitchfork had taken, like, had asked him, hey, can you pretend to be me and give them your blood? Because Pitchfork said he had already taken the test for a different friend who had a conviction for indecent exposure when he was younger. And so he didn't, his friend didn't really want to go in and, like, deal with the police. And he was like, come on, I was helping my friend out, and now you get to help me out. So Uh Pitchfork had, like, messed with his passport, put Kelly's photograph in it, and then driven him to the center and waited outside. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, doing things for your friends. Yeah, so nice. Now, one of the people in the pub was like, this is weird. (laughs) As okay. Should, that's kind of weird. Yeah, I'd be a little suspicious. And um, six weeks later, he told a policeman about this. He was like, "Hey, you know that guy Kelly? Yeah, uh, he gave his blood instead of instead of Sir Colin." Hmm. Weird. Yeah, and so Kelly was instantly arrested. <laughs> yeah. And by the end of the day, so was Pitchfork. Mm-hmm. Who, by the way looks like a murderer i'm just i got a picture of him up on my screen right now and ugh. yeah <laughs> but, i'll have to look at that while he was in custody um after reading him his rights a detective asked colin why don ashworth they were pretty certain this guy was the murderer and yeah. Pitchfork shrugged and said opportunity she was there and i was there oh my well, okay so maybe it's not maybe i'm not safe if i'm 16 <laughs> maybe maybe it's just, if it's opportunity just yeah. might as well just like consider this you know covid quarantine a life quarantine for oh, yeah no like, absolutely so this guy instantly like as soon as he was asked he gave it up he instantly gave a detailed confession to both murders and two other sexual assaults and you know how he said earlier that he had correctly stated that he had been looking after his son on the night of linda's murder mm-hmm well, when he raped and killed Linda, his car had been parked nearby, and his baby son had been asleep in the back of it. Oh my! Imagine <laughs> that's so horrible. It's horrible. So, oh my God. DNA testing came through. Go DNA fingerprinting. Go Alec Jeffries. It confirmed him as the double killer. Um, the DNA matched up perfectly. You could see it in the gel electrophoresis. You could see it in the colored segments mm-hmm. of DNA. And so the following January, he appeared at the Crown Court and he pleaded guilty to two counts of murder, two of rape, two of indecent assault, and one count of conspiring to pervert the course of justice. Oh my gosh. I know, I know. And quickly, I do want to note that the court was provided with a psychiatric report that recorded a personality disorder of psychopathic type accompanied by serious psychosexual pathology and warned that Pitchfork will obviously continue to be an extremely dangerous individual while the psychopathology continues. He was sentenced to life imprisonment um, and his minimum term was 30 years. Oh, that is literally insane. Absolutely. Um, so Jeffrey's work saved Buckland. Oh, yeah. Crazy miscarriage of justice. Um, but Pitchfork's guilty pleas meant that the DNA evidence was not 100% relied upon by the mm. prosecution. And the new science was not tested by the court. But the world was like, this is crazy stuff. And the home office took immediate steps to ensure sufficient numbers of technicians and forensic scientists were trained in this to allow dna profiling to be incorporated routinely into police casework yay that's wow and just like quickly fun fact here according to a survey conducted by baylor college of medicine in 2018 the dna fingerprinting technology has been used to solve 91 percent of violent crimes since this first you know yeah. yeah I mean, Over the last 30 years, you know, more than 50 million people have had their DNA tested during criminal investigations. Wow. That's, see, I mean, go it's Jefferson. Insane. Go Jeffers. Um, and I do also want to note that it's one, one, uh, one further thing about Pitchfork is that, um, well, in prison, he was said to be well-behaved, ed- had been educated to degree level, and had become a specialist in the transcription of printed music into Braille. Hmm. In April of 2016, he appeared before the parole board, which recommended that he be moved to an open prison, although not released. Okay. Okay. 
I, I mean, I don't love considering how horrible he was. And uh-huh. unsurprisingly, Linda, Linda Mann, the one who was murdered, uh, her mother, Kath Eastwood, was very unimpressed by this. Oh, yeah. She told the Mercury newspaper that he may have a degree, but he is also a double child murderer and rapist. You can say that he's a well-behaved prisoner, but don't ever forget that he's a well-behaved double child killer. Which, I mean, queen. Yeah. <laughs> Stand her ground. I mean, she did that. Yeah, you know what? Go her. Mm-hmm. So that is the first ever case um, in which um, you used DNA fingerprinting for crime scene analysis, and it quickly became a routine practice. So that's the first one ever. And it's a pretty exciting one, too. Um, yeah. That was so interesting. Thanks for sharing, Sammy. Of course. It's, it's Brooke's turn next, guys. Get ready. Let's Yeah, let's get Great going. Time. All right. It is my turn. All I'm right. painting my nails during this. I don't have to look at any notes this time. <laughs> yes. Get those nails done. Woo! I will. It's distracting me from the sad parts of this podcast. All right. Yes. Okay. So now I'm going to be telling you about a case that I think is pretty interesting. Um, so we're going we're gonna to take it all the way back here to 1980. Uh Okay, so that's old. okay, yeah. that's even older than my case was. Yeah, pretty pretty long time ago. Anyway, a twenty year old, twenty one year old woman named Helene Prozinski was kidnapped as she was walking home from her bus stop after after work. Now, this walk, you know, it wasn't out of the ordinary. She was just taking her daily walk. All right. Um, but yeah, she hot was abducted. Walk. What? Hot girl walk. Oh yeah, the hot girl walk. Anyway, the day after the abduction, her body was found in the middle of an empty field with her hands tied and multiple stab wounds to her back. Ooh, I know. Back? That's that's not common. I know. Just just imagine finding that. That's so horrible. It's also interesting because usually it's more likely for the killings to happen at the primary location. Yeah, and I mean circumstances like that. (laughs) Yeah, and usually it's a it's strangling, right? Not. It's often strangling that stabbing was more common back then. Also, there are the theories that stabbing is like a replacement. It's supposed to be more sexual. You've heard about those? Ah, yes, I remember. You told me. I did bring that up because I learned that from valid sources, but also mainly from watching Criminal Minds. But (laughs) that Mm -hmm. that's supposed to represent like sexual tendencies of a killer that they stabbed for that same kind of like release jeez i mean this guy he must have been bold messed up yeah anyway the investigators took dna from her body and clothing but since the case had happened before the age of advanced dna analysis her case went absolutely cold of course yeah well i mean it went cold until 2017 when that's way later yeah so many years later yep the Douglas County investigators uploaded the DNA evidence to a DNA testing site called 23andMe. Now, have you heard of this before? Yeah, 23andMe. That's where you got to, like, figure out your, like, ooh, my ancestors are from Rome. <laughs> yeah, right. And there's, like, Ancestry.com, you know, all that. Yeah. So, anyway, the investigators claimed that their usual methods were ineffective and that they needed to try a new approach. A new approach. So, okay. <laughs> yes. Expecting nothing from their out-of-the-ordinary idea, they were able to find several different people whose DNA matched similarly to that of the DNA found on Helen's body. Ooh. Yeah. I mean... Like like the murderer's DNA. Yeah. The, the oh. murderer's DNA. Oh. Crazy. The DNA that was most closely matched to the DNA was a woman named Jessie Still. So, I mean, this woman, she just was one day like you know what i'm curious about my ancestry i'm gonna upload some of my dna figure out my past who's who i'm related to and two years after she uploads her dna she gets this call and someone is like yo um you look like you could be a murderer like oh yep and and she thought this was a prank at first but you know as things went on it obviously was not a prank Mm, yeah not a fun one (laughs) not at all i don't like that prank yeah, so, so you know, uploaded her DNA. Jessie was contacted by investigators where they used her DNA profile, um, a 
fleshed out family tree and traditional investigative tools to track down and arrest Stills' distant cousin named James Clayton. So, I mean, they used her DNA and on this site, they were able to find this dude who, I mean, no one in her family, like her immediate family knew this guy, but, and there were 132 other suspects, but hers matched the most closely. So they were able to find DNA Clayton thanks to DNA fingerprinting and 23andMe. That's crazy. So detectives finally um, figured out the answer to this case uh, 40 years after the original date. 40 years. Oh, my God. Yeah. Pretty. And he was still alive? He was still alive, yeah. That's was... just that's sure chance at that point. 40 yeah. years later. Very likely. He could have uh-huh. been dead. Yep. <laughs> and he was a truck driver. Just some dude driving trucks. And, you know, just. You no. Know... I mean, that that makes sense as an occupation for that sort of thing. Like, a quick, like, abduct, do a murder, leave. Yep. Anyway, just super sad. So, Clayton later was sentenced to life in prison, and he is, you know, still living it up in the prison cell. That's crazy. Wait, so they uploaded her DNA to 23andMe just to see, and... No, no, no. Okay, so what happened, she, like, just one day out of the, just decided it just i mean they got lucky with this so her mm-hmm. dna was already on the site and um accessible From 1980 how was it no 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 no. okay so jesse still after mm-hmm. i mean the case okay helene or helen or helene was mm-hmm. killed in 1980 yeah, yeah. and i saying how did they get her dna up on on 23 and me no her her dna was not on 23 and me it was the so Jesse still had uploaded her DNA several years later yes. and her DNA matched similarly to the DNA found on Hel- Helen or Helene's right, body. How, how did they find that? How were they looking for that? They were like looking through 23 and me and they were like, Hmm, let's see. So their original tactics and investigative ideas didn't work. So they were like, let's just see if we can find anything on 23 and me. So they took the DNA of the, yeah. So they took like semen and stuff that they found on Helene's body. Oh, she raped. Yes. Oh, fine. And stabbed and killed. You know, the classics. Rape and stab. Yep. I was making that whole sexual reference (laughs) earlier, but this was straight up. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. So then, I mean, with the DNA that they found, they matched it using DNA fingerprinting and, uh, the 23andMe thing so Jesse Stills DNA was super similar to the DNA found on the body so the murderer DNA matched yeah. yeah and then they were able to find Clayton through tons of you know conversations and crazy stuff like that so that is the first case that I'm going to be talking about pretty mm-hmm. sad pretty crazy that's wild oh my god 23andMe and that Poor yeah. Jesse. Jesse's the real victim here. Really? I, I know. I mean, like, God, I'd be so, like, stressed and I confused. I spam. I, if I got, like, an email, you know, you get an email in your junk folder that's like, hey, you know, your DNA is up on 23andMe and it looks like a murderer. That's, like, the most outrageous. I would probably laugh at it. I would be like, this is the weirdest spam message I've ever gotten. I got to show my mom this. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I know. Okay. So now I'm just going to quickly talk about another case. This one, it's also pretty interesting, but nothing too crazy. Well, okay. No. This is all really crazy. It's all anyway. crazy. It's all <laughs> crazy in the field of murder. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this one happened September 26th. Again, super far. I mean, 1982. Long 1982. time ago. Oh, so still before the development mm-hmm. of... Okay. Yep. All right. So this was the day that Linda Strait who was only 15 years old at the time, was abducted while walking from her home in Spokane, Washington, to a local grocery store. Just another um, Linda, another 15-year-old Linda. We already had one of those. Yep. I, and, I mean, what's unsettling to me about this case is that it's in Spokane, which is literally, this was four and a half hours from where we live. So I don't like Spokane. I've been to Spokane. I don't know about you. It gives me some weird vibes. I get weird energy from Spokane. <laughs> yeah, worse. Bad vibes. Bad vibes. Yeah, it's worse. But yeah. Spokane is also interesting. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, the morning after her murder, her body was found by this, oh my God, poor fisherman in the Spokane River. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. It was in the river? Yep. Just floating. Just Oh, chilling. no. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cause of death? Yeah, well, 
Okay, I'm getting to that. <laughs> her body was taken to a place where investigators determined that she had been raped and strangled. Oh, oh wow. Could you have guessed? I mean, I, it's always, it's either rape and stab or rape and strangle. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So this next part is what ultimately got the case to have the ability to be solved. Uh, the mm-hmm. same poor, oh, this fisherman, he found a pillowcase uh, floating near where her body was. And Ooh. right. Yeah. So okay. yeah. How did, like, how does a wet pillowcase? What? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> this wet pillowcase still had a super small amount of semen on it. Oh, ew. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so while it was just a small amount of semen, it was enough to take DNA from. And, okay, since this happened in 1982, there was unfortunately not a whole lot that the scientists could do with the DNA other than, like, what they had already. <laughs> they didn't yeah. do anything back then. What were like, they going to do with the DNA? <laughs> I know. They probably just, like, looked at it. Um, hmm, this is definitely <laughs> DNA. <laughs> <laughs> wow, pretty cool. Look at that. All right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, as we know, uh, DNA fingerprinting was invented in 1984, so they couldn't do that right when the case had initially happened. Yeah. Um, so they had done some other tests that were ultimately inconclusive. Years later, they uh, actually in 2003, they revisited the DNA where they were able to use the magic of DNA fingerprinting to find a correlation between the DNA in the semen and the DNA of the kidnapper, rapist and murderer, R.B. Dean Williams. Wait, now, how did they find him? Well, OK, they used <laughs> the DNA from the um, little semen bit, put it. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, they. Yeah, just did some. They did crazy... some tests. They well, they matched it with. So I'm assuming he was a suspect of some sort. Then here, this we're gonna figure that out in a bit. Okay, go for it. Continue. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so with this DNA fingerprinting, they were able to find this dude. And what's oh okay? What's really scary about this guy is that Linda was not his first attack. Uh, oh, okay. I know. Only one year before abducting Linda, he had kidnapped two eight-year-old girls. Eight-year-old? Mm-hmm. One was able to run away, and the other was kidnapped, raped, and strangled until unconscious. So, Williams, he, I mean, he believed that she was dead, so he dumped her in a wooded area. Just, mm-hmm. you know, left her there. Amazingly, she woke up and ran for help. Um, cool. And, yeah, so eight months after um, the murder of Linda, he was arrested for the kidnap and rape of the two eight-year-old girls instead of Linda, because that was still a case that was undefined, you know, cold for the most part. Oh, and so he was in prison, and that's how they they found him. They were like, oh, this guy was in the area. We should check it out. So basically, the first thing that they did was run the DNA through, like, the, I mean, uh, people who were already in prison just to see, like, okay, let's, you know. Right, and they found someone who was in prison who had been in the area at the time of Linda's murder and it happened to be yeah. Linda's pretty, murder. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But yeah, so he was imprisoned and the investigation of Linda was still ongoing and then that's when they did all the stuff with the DNA and mm-hmm. found that he was... Yeah. Anyway, thankfully once it was discovered that Williams was responsible for the murder, uh, he pleaded guilty and was sentenced to a life in prison and mm-hmm. he is still there today. And so. still alive? How are all these guys still alive? I don't know. I mean, oh. he, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, he, I mean, at least he pleaded guilty straight up. You know, they, they couldn't okay. be like, well, maybe. Yep. Yeah. I mean, they're, okay. Basically, he had said that, um, here, wait, let me just find this really quick. He said... Brooke took some notes on her research. She's got to look through them. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, okay. So he said, I don't expect them to forgive me. I don't expect see how you could forgive a person like me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he said, sometimes we say we are sorry for things we uh, that we do. Most people are only sorry for when they get caught. William said, I'm not begging you for mercy. I don't deserve any mercy. I just don't want to put her family through a uh, a trial of three weeks so oh. basically he pleaded guilty to get i mean thing yeah no that's pretty interesting because that's a pretty straight up confession like the way he said i mean 
uh, I would say that's a very, you know, oh, pick me, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> so sorry or whatever. But no, I mean, there was nothing he could he could have gained from saying that. So exactly. I mean, I maybe maybe being in prison for as long as he had already been, he was like, come yeah. on, I'm already in here. <laughs> I mean, yeah, pretty much like there's not much he could do to get himself out of this. So, you know, at least at least he felt a little bit like, wow, um, yikes. But still, my goodness, yeah. these people. And he trusted, he trust the science, the police trusted the science by 2003, they went for it. Yeah. It is interesting, though, that, I mean, that is a fair thing to do, that they would go through everyone who's already in prison. They were like, all right, these guys have already, you know, raped and murdered other people. Yep. So, yeah, anyway, those are the cases that I found to be pretty interesting, and just thank you, DNA fingerprinting. Thank you. Thank Um, you very much. I have one more. Oh. One more big case, and then we'll call it a night. Okay. Let's I'm ready. In a minute. A little murder case of the night. You know, I'm always a little disappointed when you join, Brooke, as much as I love you, because I really like the background music they have playing while I wait for you to join the podcast session. Oh, I, you know, I'm so sorry. Shout so out sorry. to Anchor. Yes. <laughs> Never made a podcast before, but here we are now. Quick I think note. this is going to be another case about rape and murder of a bunch of women. If you've noticed, every case we've talked about today has been women. A little bit of a trend here. It's a little bit upsetting, but I mean, we even went out of our way to look for cases uh, where the victims were men, and they were not common. They were not really happening. Yeah. Little, nope. quick little thing, making me really feel super comfortable. <laughs> yeah. Woo! <laughs> Um, This last case is a pretty long one. You might want to strap in because this is going to be the case of the Boston Strangler. You may have heard this name before because it's pretty infamous. This is an American serial killer who murdered at least 11 women in the Boston area. Some would argue 13, actually, between 1962 and 1964. Two years. At least 11 women. That's at least five women a year. That's crazy. That's horrible. Literally how... I mean, his crimes were graphic and detailed, and there was so much going on with them that they were actually the subject of numerous books and a film in 1968, a Hollywood film. I don't really know what everyone was thinking back then when they were like, oh, yeah, let's let's make this into a brilliant Hollywood movie. But jeez, um, his identity and the exact number of victims actually proved to be a matter of controversy. So this is a pretty controversial and very well-known case we're going to talk about i'm excited to hear it so from june 1962 through january 1964 13 single women between the ages of 19 and 85 i want you to take a moment to think about that 19 and 85 this guy is not picky there is no preference usually you get preferential killers we saw last time we had two 15 year old girls you know things like that oh my gosh 19 and 85 the 85-year-old. That's horrible. <laughs> no, really That's horrible. horrible. Oh, my gosh. Um, so these 13 women were murdered throughout the Boston area. Many people believe that at least 11 of these murders were committed by the same individual because of the same manner in which each murder was committed. Um, it was believed that the women who all lived alone knew the attacker and let him in or that he disguised himself as a repairman or a delivery man or something to get women to voluntarily let him into their apartments. Now... Our brief summary before we really get into the backstory is that in every case, the victims had been raped, sometimes with foreign objects. Oh, no, no. Their bodies were laid out nude as if on display for a porn snapshot, and death was always due to strangulation, although the killer sometimes also used a knife, just to spice things up a little bit. Yeah, when he got bored, just pulled out the knife. So the ligature varied. It would be a stocking, a pillowcase, whatever it was. It was always left around the victim's neck, tied with an exaggerated and ornamental bow. So he would, like, strangle women with, you know, their stockings or whatever. And then he would tie it in some big fancy bow and, like, leave them posed. Oh, my gosh. I know. I know. this, This obviously became the trademark. The series of crimes was often referred to as the silk stocking murders. And the guy became known as the Boston Strangler. They really romanticized the heck out of this dude in some sense, you know. Oh. Don't do that to him. That just makes him more confident. Oh, God. So, a couple of years before 
because this guy, it wasn't enough for him to murder people later. Mm-hmm. Twenty years before, a series of sex offenses became uh, or began in the Cambridge, Massachusetts area, where a smooth-talking man ooh, in his mm-hmm. late twenties would go door to door looking for young women. And if a young woman would answer the door, he would introduce himself as a talent scout from a model agency looking for new models. And then if she was interested, he would tell her that he needed to get her measurements. And a lot of people would be all flattered. They were like, oh, really? You think I'm beautiful? And they would let him measure them with a measuring tape. And he would fondle them as he took their measurements. Oh, my. And this old woman, too? No. No, that's that's one of the murders. This is different. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, so that that's already pretty pretty gross that he that was a you know <sighs> that already happened ahead of time. And so this guy was referred to as the measuring man after several women contacted the police. They were like, Hey, this guy said he was a talent scout and then he sexually harassed me with a measuring tape. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Always interesting. So in March of 1960, two years before the killings began, in March of 1960, police caught a man breaking into a house, and he instantly confessed to the burglary, and without any prompting, also confessed to being the measuring man. Uh, I just, ayo, what's just up? Straight up, straight up. I it, am the measuring man. That's me. Yeah, it's me. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm robbing this house, and also, I sexually harassed a lot of people and told them I thought they were pretty. Yeah, just by the way. Yeah. His name was Albert DeSalvo, and the judge sentenced him to 18 months in jail. Um, okay. okay. Yeah, and then he was released after 11 months for good behavior. Bruh. Literally put him back. Yep. Which is good. (laughs) And, oh, by the way, after he was released, he became a new crime spree throughout Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire. During it, he would be dressed in green, and then he would break into over 400 homes and sexually assault over 300 women. So police throughout New England were all in search of the green man, and then at the same time, Boston homicide detectives were looking for the Boston Strangler. Let's go in and discuss that guy. So he really just, I mean, they just love these labels, like, you know, measuring man, green man, just going by these names. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, and there's a lot going on here. So let's talk specifically about the Boston Strangler part of this, what the murder parts of it, really. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these, all 13 murders were blamed on one lone sociopath, although mystery still surrounds the case. So he was held accountable for around 13 of, or 11 of 13 murders. So um, the first victim was Anna Slezers, who was a seamstress and a devout churchgoer, and she was murdered on June 14, 1962. She lived on her own in a little brick apartment, and her son was supposed to come by and pick her up for a memorial service that day, and oh, then he found her body in the bathroom with a cord tied around her neck in a bow. Oh my god. And her son thought she had committed suicide. Which, what? <laughs> really yeah he was like oh look my mom is lying naked in the bathroom with a cord tied around her neck and a bow she must have committed suicide <laughs> oh no oh my gosh yeah Poor- so the homicide detectives james mellon and john Dis- driscoll found her in an obscene state she was nude stripped of dignity had been sexually assaulted and the apartment was ransacked so qu- quick note uh her son's an idiot <laughs> Yeah, um, sounds, sounds like it. The police thought this must have been a botched burglary. Like, they, the burglar had thought, oh, yeah, this lady isn't home, and then she was home, and he was like, oh, man, now I gotta kill her. Oh, awesome. Well, that's what they thought, but then just under three weeks later, on June 28th, 1962, 85-year-old Mary Mullen was also found murdered in her home. And then two days later, the body of 68-year-old Nina Nichols was also discovered in the Brighton area of Boston. And again, it appeared to be a burglary, despite the fact that valuable silver appeared untouched. The ransacking didn't make any sense to detectives. Both of these women were found in a state of undress, legs wide open, and their stocking tops tied in a bow around their necks. Holy... Wow. That's just horrible. 
I know. And then on the same day, a second body was discovered a few miles north of Boston in the suburb of Lynn. Helen Blake was a 65-year-old divorcee. Her murder was a lot more gruesome. She had suffered lacerations. Oh. Trigger warning. Trigger warning to her vagina. Uh, I'm so... That's so... It's traumatizing. It's horrible. Oh my... Wow. It's okay. horrible. And and the bow trademark was evident. They tied her bra around her neck in a bow. Which, how do you even do that? But um, that also looked like a burglary. So after all three of these, it was pretty clear Boston had a serial killer in its mix. Awesome. The police commissioner canceled all police leave. He was like, you all need to be here. There yeah. was a big warning that went out to the female population, obviously. Mm-hmm. And they were like, wow, we're definitely looking for a psychopath whose hatred of older women may be linked to his own relationship with his mother. Oh, my gosh. Which what was if... an interesting start, but then they kept finding younger victims, too. So, What do you think you would have done? Like, if you had heard, like, this is I mean, happening in your it's area. A vacation. I'm going. I'm getting out of here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I if don't I'm even know. Woman, which I, which I am. Um, and I, I know four people have already, or, or, well, three people, three people have already been murdered nearby in their own homes like that. Oh, yeah. I'm leaving. I don't yeah. want this. I don't want to deal with this. Yep. I'd well, be out. This woman wasn't so lucky. There was a fourth slaying, a 75-year-old widow mm-hmm. on her back, mm-hmm. legs apart again. Awesome. Oh, my and, and then there were more. Less than 24 hours later, another woman had been strangled by her own nurse nylons, which is interesting. Then three months later, there was 21-year-old African-American student, so there wasn't even a race preference here. She was mm-hmm. mindful of her safety and rarely dated. And she was found, you know, same things, strangled by her stockings and all of that stuff. And despite her precautions, she had still let in the murderer. So we know something he's doing is convincing all these women to let him in. That's horrible. Isn't that terrifying? And, oh, this was the first case where they found DNA evidence, though. Oh, that's as horrible. As it was that she was sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. That left us evidence, so. She didn't fit the same profile as the other victims, but they were sure that it was the work of the same killer. And this time they had a lead because a female neighbor informed the police that a man had knocked on her door, insisting that he had been sent to paint her apartment. And she finally, or he finally left after she told him her husband was sleeping in the next room. Okay. Interesting. Three weeks later, another young woman who was pregnant. Oh, she was discovered by her boss when she didn't turn up for work. That's, oh my God. Several months before another attack but then another 65 year old woman strangled and raped then two months later and the ninth victim a 23 year old graduate was murdered and it, it just kept going how um, like literally what is going through this person's head they're I just like no and this one was crazy bloody guys i'm not gonna describe it because it's kind of traumatizing i hate reading this even but oh yeah they uh she was stabbed too they thought that she must have she was a choir student oh she was a singer and the police thought that because of her strong throat muscles the killer must have taken to stabbing her instead of strangulation oh okay right (laughs) which was weird so the police were desperate they Mm -hmm. even talked to a clairvoyant which is things they used to do in the olden days that were weird got it okay super weird anyway People keep getting murdered. I'm not even going to describe them all. There's all this investigations going on. They have to look through thousands of pages of material. Um, police profiling was relatively new because this is the early 1960s. This is way older than any of our other cases again. Yeah, wow. And they came up with what they thought was the most likely description. They were like, he's around 30. He's neat. Orly worked with his hands. Was most likely a loner who was divorced or separated. Now... In he wasn't actually found because of um the Boston Strangler things though because if you remember he was the green man where mm-hmm. he broke into over four hundred homes 
and a young woman who was one of his victims came forward to the police in October of 1964, saying that a man posing as a detective entered her home and sexually assaulted her. And they were like, hey, that's Albert DeSalvo. That's the same guy who was the measuring man. Oh my, that's like, I just don't even understand. What is this dude doing? No, um, he was arrested on a rape charge, sent to a Bridgewater State Hospital for psychiatric observation where he befriended a convicted murderer named George Nazar. So, the, I mean, this guy just, wow. <laughs> and it is speculated that the two worked out a deal to split reward money if one of them confessed to being the Boston Strangler. They really think they'd get... Oh he confessed God. to his attorney then that he was the Boston Strangler. And because he described the murders in accurate detail, his t- attorney was like, oh, maybe you are. Yep. Although, quick note, DeSalvo, part of the reason everyone was weirded out by this was because he has such a good reputation around his friends and work somehow. And he was also known for being an extreme braggart. So they were like, he's just got to be making this up. That's and so weird. no physical evidence. Oh. This brought the Strangler's one surviving victim, Gertrude Gruen, to the, pr- uh, to the prison to identify the man she fought off. And they brought both the murderer he befriended and DeSalvo. Mm-hmm. And she said that DeSalvo was not the guy. Are Although you kidding me? The first guy, Nassar, she felt that he was somehow very upsetting to her. And maybe it was him. Uh, what? Yeah. That's okay. Pretty crazy. And there was no physical evidence, and he didn't match witness descriptions, and he never tried in any of the murders, but he was sent to prison for life for the rapes and sexual assaults from the Green Man case. Okay. And he was sent to a maximum security state prison. Oh um, but six years later, he was stabbed to death in his cell. This, by the way, he was sent to prison in 1967, so, you know, he could have finished his murder spree. But six <laughs> years later, stabbed to death mysteriously in his cell. And after 50 years, no one had ever been charged as the Boston Strangler. Oh, dear. That's terrible. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And so, how was he caught? How does DNA fingerprinting playing into this at all? In in any form or whatever? (laughs) Well, um... Hold on, I'm trying to... No worries. This is just, I mean... There's just so much going on here, which is pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. Well, okay... After Sasabo was stabbed to death, because of the level of security, it was a maximum security prison, it was assumed that the killing had been planned with a degree of cooperation between employees and prisoners. They were like, the, the prisoners and the employees there must have claimed to kill him. Uh, okay. And though there were no more murders after Salvo had been arrested, the case was never actually closed. Because they had no physical evidence... This guy, people did not believe, his friends and family did not believe he was capable of this. Mm-hmm. They knew him to be a braggart. Mm-hmm. Um, they had already dealt with the green man stuff and the measuring man stuff, and they were like, this just doesn't make any sense. So in 2001, his body was exhumed, DNA yeah. tests were taken, and compared to the evidence taken from the last strangler victim, who was named Mary Sullivan, and there was no match. So this proved that DeSalvo had not sexually assaulted Sullivan, but it also didn't rule out his involvement in her murder. Also, again, they said he was involved in 11 of the 13 murders, so. Oh, this is just bizarre. This keeps going. July 2013, it was announced that his body would be exhumed again for re-evaluation using new forensic testing, using more um, modern... DNA profiling? I don't know. There haven't been many advancements, so it doesn't really make sense always. But they said, all right. Boston Police Department thought they found DNA evidence that linked Albert DeSalvo to Mary Sullivan in July 2013. And so they took DNA from DeSalvo's nephew. Okay. Because, you know, he's super dead. They found Mm -hmm. his nephew. And the police said it was a near certain match. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And then they extracted DNA from DeSalvo's femur and his teeth, and it was finally determined that he was the man who killed and raped Mary Sullivan. Yeah. Okay. That's literally... 
that's the only one they could prove. And so the, the, her case was closed, but the mystery of the Boston Strangler still remains open to speculation. I mean, you can say that maybe it was it was solved 50 years later, but it, mm, that's so, so like it's still kind of questionable today. Yeah, it's rough. They used DNA profiling to test it. They knew it was there. They actually, what they did was they recovered a water bottle from a construction site where Tim DeSalvo, mm-hmm. who was the nephew of Albert, um, mm-hmm. and that gave them the DNA evidence they needed to bring that kind of closure in. Um, that's, wow. Yeah. That's it, so weird. That's crazy. It's, it's pretty crazy. What they did actually was, I can explain the science part of this, because, hey, we're talking about DNA fingerprinting here. Um, her killer, the killer of Mary Sullivan, left behind seminal fluids off mm-hmm. the blanket that her body was covered with, and it's the only DNA evidence in the entire investigation. Oh, wow. So, sexually charged murderer, for sure, that was his, you know, what charged him, but, um, not a lot of evidence he actually left. So, what police did was they had to make sure the Y chromosomes in the DNA samples were a familial match to DeSalvo in order to convince the judge to let investigators disturb his grave. And so BPT Sergeant Brian Albert, who was a surveillance expert, followed Tim DeSalvo to his work site. They took his water bottle mm-hmm. and then they ran, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, legally, his family didn't want that. And they basically, the police stopped him. And they stole his water bottle so that they could get, because again, saliva. Right. For DNA testing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was a match to the samples collected in the 1964 Beacon Hill murder. Um, and that provided comfort to um, Mary Sullivan's family and all of that. And that was really incredible. But, you know, again, you couldn't prove the rest of the murders. So... I mean, it's pretty obvious that he did a bunch of them. But again, he was also a bragger. He did all of this stuff. And it's it, it's one of the most uncertain and still talked about cases um, that's, that's ever happened. So there's your big wild one of the day. There, Yeah, there we go. Oh, my gosh. These, they're just... That one's pretty disturbing. I left out a lot of um, information on that one in terms of the actual details of the case, because this is pretty disturbing. When 13 people are murdered in almost the exact same way, and you get all these horrible graphic details. <laughs> 13. Oh, no. Yeah, I mean, like, this just, all this stuff just is so, like, mm-hmm. I can't, pro- like, it's, it's crazy what, to me. What's crazy about that, though, if you think about it, though, I mean, that murder, 1964, and July 2013, that is 50 years later. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, 50. And DNA fingerprinting was, is, you know, works so well enough and DNA preserves itself well enough, you know, that that worked. We could solve a case from 50 years ago with the help of DNA fingerprinting by checking Y chromosomes to find a familial match and then using DNA fingerprinting to compare the DNA left behind at the murder and the DNA of a family member. Wow. I think I think we just need to like look back at the inventor of all this like Jefferson you just Jeffries you did it <laughs> go oh wow nice awesome <laughs> Jefferson mm-hmm. <laughs> talking yep okay That's Jeffries he just he did it we yeah <laughs> that wraps up that case and yeah. we'll move forward into a mild a little quick conclusion yeah all right awesome gosh after listening to all of these horrible horrible cases and the murders like i i I hope you're okay like sammy are you okay i'm all right i hope everyone out there goes and takes a big drink of water yeah maybe maybe are you joking? <laughs> um, anyway. Big breath turns yeah. off their cell phone notifications so they won't scare you like Brooks do. Yep. Um, maybe have a little snack. Anyway. Oh, gosh. To me, it's just so sad and, like, crazy that these things are just... I mean, they're real. And we have to take precautions every single day, whether we think we do or not, mm-hmm. just to stay safe. Because there are people out there that will do things like this. It's just... Yeah, I, I mean, I'm thankful for DNA fingerprinting, though. So if I'm ever, you know, 
in a field well, not alive. Well, crazy to think about because basically all the cases that we chose to talk about, because we really looked for the most notable ones, they were all pretty old. And the fact mm-hmm. that we were able to go back and provide comfort to the families because that's how DNA works. DNA can stay, you know. Yeah. It doesn't decompose as much like the rest of the body. And yeah. um, when, when we preserve it, as, as we have. And mm-hmm. the fact that we were able to go back and solve all these is pretty crazy. And the fact, I mean, through DNA fingerprinting, DNA profiling, as we're now moving into using microsatellites and just updating methods a tiny bit as we see how these things progress. And then you wonder what we're going to be able to do using DNA um, to identify people in the future, how we're going to be able to cut down on the times. Because, I mean, as you saw in the beginning, they were basically just, I mean, they made everyone in a in in um edinburgh in that first case they made everybody in this giant area just give blood they were like you all could be the murderer hopefully we'll figure out how to cut things like that down in the future but the fact that the science was able to you know definitively match right i mean exactly like science changes all the time and who knows how like i mean modernized it's gonna get in the future and how oh my gosh it, like it's just gonna get even better but we're gonna be yeah good to go <laughs> but sammy how, how do you feel about this whole thing i i really it makes you so thankful for the science again like i just hearing hearing about all of this the fact that we're able to go back and solve any of these cases when they sound so long ago and the way that they solve them sometimes sounds so silly and outdated mm-hmm. it's, it's crazy and i mean i mean i'm never leaving my house again but, <laughs> <laughs> right but also um i mean I wouldn't have thought necessarily. I mean, all those people in the room with Alec Jeffries, when he was like, hey, we could use this to solve crimes, they all laughed at him. And you're like, oh, I wouldn't have done that. But then you think back and you're like, really? I'm like, this guy was like, I, I can I can um, cut, copy, and separate DNA right. so that we can compare it with things. The first thing I would have thought would not have been, oh, yeah, this will solve some murders. Right. It's pretty crazy that this is where we are and that this is just a typical part of the crime solving process now. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I guess what you're saying, just listen to the weird things that people say. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they work. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for listening and thanks for telling me about these crazy murders, Sammy. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Brooke. And thanks everyone again for listening to Criminal Genes where we talk about murders and also genetics. All right. See you next time. Adios.